What's up, dudes? It's your boy Chard with the Smokes and Chokes podcast, where a long, lifelong BMX rider makes a horribly inconsistent effort at talking about fights. And uh, I, I had no choice, but I have to talk about UFC 284. Uh, I hate the numbers. I always lose track of them. But most importantly, before I start talking about anything else about this card, First and foremost, I just want to say that Alexander Volkanovsky is the best fighter I've ever seen. Like, I cannot overstate how much he impressed me in this performance, where he was very clearly outweighed by what was most likely a solid 20 pounds, and put on an absolute show that no one Islam size has been able to do. Um, we'll talk about the judging in a minute, but f- I just wanted to talk about the, like, just the sheer level of impressiveness where, you know, Islam wasn't able to do things like he did against, say, Dan Hooker. Like, he wasn't able to just blitz in and go for the takedown right away. Because Volkanovsky, A, he's harder to shoot on just because he's he's a much shorter, stockier dude. Um, and you have to the shoot way lower to make that happen. But more importantly, Volkanovsky is fainting the upper the right uppercut. And there's tape of Volkanovsky hitting guys with that uppercut when they come in. Um I want to say it's been a bit, but like he, for example, like he hit Chad Mendez with a ripper of an uppercut uh, when Chad Mendez came in. So it's like, you know, he knew that Islam would be aware of that as a weapon and would respect it, especially considering, yeah, Volkanovsky's shorter and doesn't weigh quite the same, but you know he is absolutely strong as an ox and does hit hard. So it was something that Islam had to respect, and it made that it made the tentativeness for Islam's shots work so well for Alex to like keep things at a more reasonable pace and kind of let Alex have a little bit more control over where the fight would take place and the what the pace was going to be. So it's not it's not a factor of like, oh, Islam's just scared or like, oh, he's trying to feel him out or whatever. It's like, no, it's like there are things Alex is doing to keep that from being a constant like crazy threat like another for another example is you notice the times when alex has islam pressed against the fence and alex is on the outside um and he's like holding head position in the clinch notice he never throws a knee he never throws the knee against the fence because islam is so good at taking those opportunities to get the trip and get his opponents down and alex just didn't bite it did like didn't fall forward at all even when islam tried to like get him to do it by throwing a knee himself to be like okay like i'm gonna throw a knee like you do it too like he did that against Oliveira, and you saw that happen like 
Oliver like Islam is getting pushed against the fence by Oliveira. He throws a knee. Oliveira throws the knee, and immediately down he goes. So Alex, as we come to expect from uh, city kickboxing fighters, they've clearly done a ton of tape study, as well as Alex, much like he does, much like he's done in previous fights, like. My God, the the amount he learned from the Max fights is crazy. Like, you see Alex learning as this fight goes on. And really, I think I'm going to talk about the judging and a lot of people are screaming robbery and such. And it's like, yes and no, because it was a very close fight. And I think it could have easily been judged either way. The main thing about it is that fourth round, in my opinion, at least, because Alex definitely won the fifth. And a lot of people were a lot of people felt that it was two and two going into the fifth. And I think the main reason for that is because over the last shit, maybe dozen cards or so, the judging has changed. And it is favoring damage significantly over positional control. And that's a change that I genuinely like. I think it's good. Um, but it's been a pretty consistent thing in judging over the last dozen cards or so. Where, for example, here's a great example. Why did Patty Pimblett win the decision over Jared Gordon? Well, Jared Gordon held positional control. Patty Pimblett outstruck him by a little not by a lot, by a little. He landed a few strikes. Now, here another example that went the other way is uh, Aljamain Sterling, Peter Yan. That fight, Aljamain Sterling had back control for almost the entirety of a round and won it. I think he got a 10-8 in that round or something, but held, held back control the entire round and Piotr Jan was just trying to like, you know, like kind of throw the occasional punch. But I think the an important difference here between that fight and how that round played with Aljo versus Jan and this fight, the fourth round with Alex and Islam is in the fourth round of the Alex Islam fight, when Alex is shifting his shoulders to punch up at Islam from, you know, up in his back, the impact of those shots is significantly higher than the impact of what Piotr Jan tries to do to Aljo while Aljo's on his back. As well as Aljo the entire time is making a very strong concerted effort at trying to get the choke, where Alex doesn't really have to do that much hand fighting. He really just is kind of... Islam is... By all intents and purposes, Islam is stalling because Islam is feeling his stamina drain. You see it in the fifth round. Islam is tired and Alex isn't. And Alex can do this shit all day and proves it by the end of that round where Islam is just kind of crumbling. And Alex lands a hellacious amount of ground and pound at the end after getting a knockdown. Um... As well, so that fourth round is weird because it's like, yes, Islam has back control for a large percentage of that round, but he also doesn't use it for anything. 
and you know he occasionally kind of half-heartedly tries for chokes he doesn't hand fight that much and he's eating shots that are quite frankly some of the hardest shots you'll ever eat from a guy that you have the back of because uh, alex was able to shift his shoulders almost to like a 45 degrees so that he could actually like get a little bit of torque on it and you you can see islam being like ah fuck this sucks like so when you're judging is over the past while been shown to favor strikes and damage primarily over positional control it makes sense that it would mislead your fighter into thinking oh well i'm winning this round because he's not he's not giving significant submission threat and i'm landing decent shots that are equivalent to say like just an arm punch jab um i would argue it's similar amount of impact so as a if you're in that situation if you're volkanovsky in that fourth round and you're looking at the ref being like yeah he ain't doing shit watch what i'm doing um and by the end of that round when he goes back to his corner i believe what he says i love to watch it again but i believe what he says to his corner after the end of the fourth round is volk says to his corner he's not an mma fighter he's a grappler <laughs> and um it was just some cold shit to say when you're fighting like you know one of the best in the world And, you know, I, I don't believe it was an unreasonable thing for Alex to think he won that round based on the judging we've seen over the last few months and how the judging has been happening. And it's not like it was different judges. It was still Derek Cleary and fucking uh, Sal Amato and those fucks that are judging it, that are always judging everything. Like, it's not like it was a different set of judges. It's the same judges that have been making those other decisions that have gone the other way now the whole fight like the fight hinges on how those judges judge that round so i'm not going to say it's totally unreasonable to for people to consider it a robbery but at the same time it's like the judges have been celebrated for making that decision before in aljo yon too so it's 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 the sort of thing where you can be mad because they're horribly inconsistent. And I think that's the thing to be mad about. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's to be mad about it being a, like quote unquote robbery because it was close enough that you can't really consider it a robbery either way. But you can say that it's criminal that the judges have been so inconsistent because it affects what the fighters do. It affects say how much Alex has his, how much urgency Alex has to change position because why would he need to if he thinks he's winning based on what the judging history has been over the last few months you know like it when your judging is is a certain way it's going to affect what fighters do because they're like okay well i need to do what the judges score well and that's just a natural thing for any fighter to do so when you judge like that for a while and then decide one night oh actually i'm gonna judge the other way then you're giving a true injustice to the fighters because it does affect what fighters want to do so you know it 
And it's also, it's, there are just funky things around this fight with how it's been treated as far as promotionally, where it's like, it's all about the number one pound for pound. Whoever wins this is number one pound for pound. And you go, well, that completely ignores what pound for pound means. Because if Islam wins, then it's like, all right, cool. You beat a guy way smaller than you. That doesn't mean you're number one pound for pound. It means, oh, weight classes. It just confirms that weight classes matter. It doesn't mean you're a better fighter necessarily. Um, and the way this fight played out very much says, hey, Alex is absolutely a better pound for pound fighter in terms of skill. If you're going to go by the definition of what pound for pound means, I mean, it's kind of that argument's always been kind of bullshit because it's like if you want to go pound for pound, like skill and ability it's mighty mouse all day long like in terms of the greatest of all time pound for pound like it's mighty mouse no question like he's because he's faster like if you transplanted everything mighty mouse can do into a heavyweight it would be the most unstoppable monster you've ever seen it would be horrifying um but i think it's just it's a ridiculous argument to have where it's like when Bisping's yelling at the crowd, like, oh yeah, he does like, shut up. It's true. He's number one pound for pound now. And you go like, actually, no, this fight doesn't make Islam the number one pound for pound fighter. In fact, it just confirms that Alex is right now the best, like overall fighter right now, because he has so, he has so much skill and ability and grit and toughness, and cardio, and, like, all these amazing things about how he fights, he has all these things that can carry him to not just beating a guy that's in the top, in a, an upper weight class, he's, we're talking a guy who's so good that, because it's not like Volkanovski is a massive featherweight, like, Shane Burgos is bigger than Alex Volkanovski in every way. And yet, Alex is so good and has so many, like, impressive qualities for a fighter that it can carry him to a 50-50 fight that could be judged either way with a guy who's massive for the weight class above him. I mean, we're talking like Khabib and Islam. These guys, these guys are so big compared to other 155ers in terms of like mass and like weight look at it this way khabib when when Bilal muhammad went to train with khabib khabib told him you're a lightweight like straight up was like no you should be at lightweight and Bilal muhammad is not that small of a welterweight it's not like Bilal muhammad is uh you know horribly undersized at 170 and I guarantee you, Bilal Muhammad cuts from about 200. So the idea of like, okay, we're talking about Volkanovsky, who is a 145er and not a massive one, is taking on a dude who's definitely at least 180 pounds on fight night and is also like smashing everybody at that weight class. And Alex is making a one hell of a competitive fight out of it to the point where, depending on the judge's mood, could have had him taking the dub. Like, it's 
it's incredible what that dude can do. And like, and he's just like a cool guy. Like, obviously, emotionally, because I've been, me and my friends, and like pretty much the entire MMA world has loved Max Holloway for so long. It was hard for us to turn around and on Volkanovsky and like actually really like appreciate how much of a cool dude he is. Because it's like, yeah, but the shit with him and Max just like kind of spoiled it. But like as the time goes on and just being like, holy fuck, this dude's incredible. Like really like it's become easier and easier to just appreciate what a boss this dude is. Like he's one of the best fighters. He might be the best fighter I've ever seen. Like because he has he has factors that make him special that even Mighty Mouse doesn't have. I mean, the fact that Volk is so incredibly strong for his weight is such a massive factor in what in things he can do. Like, yeah, his technique helped him get up and helped him keep uh, Islam from taking him down. But there were moments where it was just his absolute brute strength that just made him able to get up. And so, yeah, it's... The dude impress the shit out of me and i can't wait for the rematch you know they're gonna do it they have to do it especially when like a massive proponent proponent of the mma community thinks it was a robbery and now islam it's hard to say if islam is going to get another title defense in his belt and you know be ready for a rematch with volk but I don't think there's a doubt in most people's minds that Volkanovski is going to beat Yair Rodriguez and then go, okay, okay, Islam, you ready? Let's do it again. Um, we're going to see. I mean, obviously, 155 is a little bit of a mess right now because you've got, what, Benil Dariush is a new face at the top of 155. And, like, Sarukian's working his way up, but obviously he got a little bit sidetracked by that fight with, uh, by that split loss with Gamrot. But Sarukian is, like, an, he's amazing and was the first sign as far as, like, the public consciousness, because neither of them were really known before that fight. But, like, the fight with Sarukian and Islam where it goes, like, oh, like, this dude's a stocky, strong grappler. Islam had a tough time with him and couldn't really keep him controlled. Uh, I think that's a really meaningful thing. And I think Sarukian is absolutely going to be a top fiver in a year. I think there's no there's no doubt in my mind that Sarukian's going to be a top five in a year at lightweight. He's a beast. And that is another... Like, there's so many things that make me question, like, okay, how long is Islam really going to stay at the top? Um, especially with this fight, Alex showed so many ways to deal with that signature Dagestani style that I think a lot of Islam's future matchups are going to be tougher for him because people now see a lot more ways to deal with him. So, like, I hope Islam wins his next uh defense i really do because i want to see this rematch so bad because it was a great great fight and i there's yeah it, it it's encouragement that like hey 
there has been a lot of garbage MMA lately, but fights like this restore one's faith that MMA can be good and be, like, technically amazing and have cool stories, and it's just awesome. Um, and another hilarious thing that's coming, what happens if, um, what happens at the end of the Ultimate Fighter season this year? Because Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler are fighting at the end of that tough season, which is just crazy that that actually is happening. And Michael, and it's going to be at 170, which I'm sure Chandler's not going to build any muscle for. He's plenty explosive already, and he doesn't need any worse cardio. I think Chandler should stay exactly as he is. Um, I mean, he's definitely not undersized. I mean, the dude, I think he weighed like 187 or some shit on fight day last time he fought. So like, he's definitely not, he doesn't have a problem with that. It's, uh, and I think if he is smart, he will wrestle Connor because he is actually a very good top control, like dominant wrestler when he wants to be. Um, or more importantly, when things aren't going well for him on the feet, like we saw many, many a time in Bellator. And that people kind of forgot was a thing he could do since his run in the UFC where he's just decided to be an explosive crazy man um, purely. So that fight's going to be interesting. And I suspect whoever wins that is going to end up getting a title shot and skipping the line. But um, I hope Islam fights like a Benil Dariush or somebody in between that. Uh, Lightweight's getting interesting again with some of this new blood coming in uh, and really kind of mixing things up between, like, Gamrot, Sarukian, uh, Dariush. Uh, Connor coming back is weird. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, if Connor loses to Chandler, he's probably going to be gone forever, um, especially if Chandler finishes him in, like, some crazy way. But, uh, yeah, Lightweight's getting interesting again, and it's cool. Um, but at the same time, like I said, I hope that both Alex and Islam get one more defensive piece and then have a rematch because it's just the best fight to make in MMA right now. At least that's what it feels like. So, yeah. That's kind of... That's all you really need to say about it. It's great. And... I want more, please. Thank you. Uh, next, we have Josh Emmett versus Yair Rodriguez that set up, you know, Yair fighting for the belt. Uh, he's got an interim belt, and interim belts are stupid. It was kind of silly. Um, I It frustrates me. And it was basically, it's funny, the interim belt was made with the expectation that Alex would win and, you know, not be at 45 for a bit. But then Alex, you know, rug, lost on the scorecards. We'll just say that. We won't say robbed. We'll just say lost on the scorecards. Um, and so, perfect opportunity, like, just comes back and goes like, oh, no, actually, I am back with a regular schedule. Like, no big gap. I'm ready to fight at 145er again. So it it kind of, interim belts are always a little invalidated, but especially now. I mean, the, the ultimate invalidation of an interim belt was when uh, Tony Ferguson got stripped of his. 
which it was just like, oh, okay, so. <laughs> Interim belts couldn't matter less. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, but basically that Josh Emmett fight, it was one of those, because I looked at that fight going in. Pardon me, having a sip of orange soda. Like the fat fuck I am. Uh, Josh Emmett had trouble with the kicks. And that was kind of the story of the whole fight. Was that Josh Emmett had real bad trouble with the kicks. The body kicks really wore him down hard. Uh, but that's the thing is, um, if you've watched a lot of Josh Emmett, which I know a lot of people haven't, a lot of people weren't really paying attention to Josh Emmett that much until recently. But uh, go back and watch Josh Emmett's fight against Shane Burgos. And you'll notice when Shane Burgos isn't trying too hard to look cool, as Shane Burgos tends to do. I love him as a fighter, but man, he really admires his own work. Like he'll like slip a couple punches and go, yeah, I'm cool. Instead of slipping and countering, <laughs> he'll just kind of rope it up for a bit and be like, yes, I'm very cool. Uh, and Shane Burgos, when he do it, he, when he threw teep kicks to keep Josh at range, it was very effective. His teeps on Josh were like, it's what made that fight go the distance. <clears throat> and, uh. Then you go back further and see other fights in Josh Emmett's career. He's always had issues with long kickers. Um, so I kind of saw it coming where like, okay, he's had trouble with long kickers. He's tough as shit, but hits like a truck. And he's fighting a Mexican who fucking loves to kick all the time and is damn near indestructible. And so, okay, like, yeah, you might hit him with a bomb and you might wobble him for a second, but if you can't get him out of there, he's just going to kick your guts out. And that's exactly what ended up happening. And, you know, I like, I like Josh Emmett, but it was one of those matchups where it's just like, I don't know, man, it's kind of saw it coming a little bit. Um, yeah, it was rough. And Josh Emmett, who's a guy who makes a very strong point of trying to keep the pace a little bit low so that he can save the energy to throw those big winging bombs uh, when he wants to. Because he, th he throws very, very hard, very, like, way more often than most fighters do. And a lot of that has to do with he'll use the big shot to keep his opponent from, like, keep from keep his opponent from increasing the pace and try to keep his opponent at bay so that he can recharge and then throw another big shot. It's like if you're playing Dark Souls and you're using like some ridiculously massive weapon. For those who don't know, the video game Dark Souls, you need, uh, you have a stamina meter where every time you do something, it reduces and then it takes time to re regenerate. So you can't do too much shit at once or you'll just stop moving and then get hit. Um, and playing that game if you're using a massive weapon like the dragon bone smasher that's like a giant club you can use that thing once every 10 seconds maybe um 
And that's kind of how Josh Emmett fights is he's like, okay, I'll throw one of the biggest, strongest punches possible to keep you back. And hopefully it'll keep you back long enough for me to recharge so I can throw another one. And uh, Yair Rodriguez was just having none of it. He was like, nah, I don't care. You hit me, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to put my toes in your guts. Um, and it was, it just worked. Like it's, it was a game plan that you can't really use against Josh Emmett unless you are absurdly tough. Like Rodriguez is. Um, and another, another thing that would work against him. I, it was funny looking ahead being like, if Josh Emmett somehow gets this done, He's going to have a hard time fighting Volkanovski because he's not going to see his openings for his big shots because of uh, Volkanovski's fainting and his very, very convincing feints or uh, bullshit volume, as I've heard people call it before, which I really like. Um, he's not throwing a million strikes, but he's fainting so much that it's just like it's this bullshit volume that is it's still keeping you at bay and keeping you guessing. Um, and that would have been a really tough thing for Josh Emmett. Um, but yeah, Rodriguez and winning this fight, I wish I could say it was a surprise, but uh, it wasn't really. And him against Volkanovski is to be, at the very least, very exciting. Um, I, I want to believe that Volk is going to take it. Um, I think Volk using wrestling is going to be a massive factor against Rodriguez. Because yes, Rodriguez has some decent uh submission game and clearly used it here against josh when josh was like ah fuck let me try to wrestle um but alex clearly has some of the best submission defense we've ever seen in mma and uh yeah he's he just has all the tools to beat a guy like that so but it's still going to be incredibly exciting because every yaya rodriguez fight is exciting and to be frank every volkanovsky fight is exciting so, uh, yeah, it's going to be awesome regardless. But uh, at least my super early prediction is still for Volk to take it because just he's shown to have such a massive array of ability and grit and everything. Oh, we have Jack Della Maddalena fighting Randy Brown. Uh, he did exactly what he needed to do against Randy Brown in terms of the style matchup. He needed to crowd him out, pressure him hard to try and keep Randy from throwing the kicks because Randy has a very, very long, rangy body that he can use. Um, that sounded weird. Um, but Randy Brown is really long and rangy, uses a lot of teep kicks, a lot of long, long weapons, a lot of like kind of lunging jabs, things like that. Um, and Jack Della Maddalena, while he is a somewhat lanky guy himself um he was at a pretty big disadvantage in this fight i mean their arm reach was a five inch gap or something so imagine two and a half inches per arm um so he and probably more actually because i bet jack i bet jack's shoulders are wider than randy's making it that that's a funny thing about reach numbers is they're kind of misleading where, like, if someone's shoulders are really wide, then sometimes their effective reach is not as long as uh, the number suggests. 
because it means like, oh yeah, their shoulders are wide, but that means their arms are shorter compared to the average person with a more proportional body and the same reach number. So really, Jack Della Maddalena probably was at even more of a reach disadvantage than two and a half inches per arm. And uh, so he just, he did the right thing and pressured, crowded Randy down so that Randy was limited in his kicks and had to try to counter with punches more. And uh, yeah, just caught him circling out. Not unlike, uh, not unlike how Justin Gaethje was catching people for a bit, you know, when he, uh, when he caught, I think it was what? Edson Barbosa, I think. Um, basically, he was pressuring really hard, and then when people would circle out, he would kind of throw a long outside hand. But uh, yeah, Jack was just doing, just pressured him down, popped him one, and then uh, showed he had a, some pretty decent groundwork. Ground and pounded him until he turned his back, got the rear naked choke. It's um, kind of standard MMA stuff, but uh, it just it was an IQ test, really, for Jack is what this fight was. And uh, he passed with flying colors. Um, a Samoan fat guy knocked out a white fat guy is kind of all you need to know about Justin Taffa versus Parker Porter. Um, Samoan fat guy hits harder. I wish I could say that's a surprise. But um, in the history of MMA, Samoan fat guys... They hit really hard. So, you know. That was that fight. <laughs> Didn't last long. Um, Jimmy Crute versus Alonzo Minifield was just awesome. And holy fuck, what is Jimmy Crute made out of? He's also, it's not even made out of. He's just, he has so much grit and determination and like heart. Because... On a bad night with a bad ref, that fight could have been stopped probably three different times. And Jimmy Crute just gritted through it. And by the end, had Menafield tired as shit and had him controlled on the ground. And it was amazing. And the fight ended up being a draw because Alonzo Menafield grabbed the fence um, in the later round when um, I believe it was in the third round. When Jimmy Crute was taking him down and he grabbed the fence and literally held himself up completely with the fence. Mad props to Mark Goddard for uh, catching that and taking the point because that takedown, because the previous rounds in the fight showed that if Jimmy Crute lands that takedown, it changes the entire round and probably wins it to wins it for him. So, seeing that fence grab, like which is a foul, keep that from happening, it was really cool of Mark Goddard to be like, "Hey, that's so meaningful. I need to take a point because if Jimmy gets you down, that's the round." So it was it was a good piece of refing, which. It's just nice to see because refing has been so inconsistent and iffy lately. And the refing in pretty much this whole fight card has been was pretty much stellar. It was pretty good. So that was cool to see. And it ended up being a draw. Um, 
it's incredible that Jimmy Crew made it through. Um, if you are an Avatar fan like me, it's super cool to see Jimmy Crute's tattoos because they're rad and he got like a big lion turtle. He's old, he's had that um, Earthbender symbol on his chest for a really long time. And then he got like more uh, kind of a surrounding piece that had like a, a the lion turtle right above it. And it was just cool. And I'm like, and he, he during the pre-fight, you know, when Buffer's yelling his name, he like points to it. Um, so I feel like a weird piece of camaraderie with that dude also i just love funny australians and he is a funny australian um yeah that fight was crazy i guess they're gonna run it back maybe depending on what the ufc wants to do um fuck if they do i imagine jimmy is gonna lean way more on the wrestling and alonzo is gonna do a lot more wrestling defense probably um yeah who knows man that Alonzo Menafield is such a ridiculously powerful guy. And uh, I hate to say I don't see Jimmy winning the rematch, but I didn't see him winning this fight either. And uh, he had a lot of strong moments in that fight. So um, I think, sure, why not? Let's do it. It was Jimmy Crude. More Jimmy Crude is good because uh, he's just cool. Cool dude. Um, is a bummer to see Tyson Pedro lose again. I mean, yeah, it was a decision, but still, like, he's another really likable guy that you just want to succeed. I know he doesn't necessarily have to fight for a living anymore, because he, him and Ty have Drink West, um, and other investments and stuff, and I think Tyson's talked about, like, his wife has a good career and stuff like that, but, um, it's a bummer to see him lose again, because... You know, he like kind of really reignited his passion for fighting. Um, and just this fight, he just didn't seem all there in terms of his aggression. Um, I think if he was a little more, if he pressured a little more and uh, just upped his volume, he probably could have won it without too much, um, without too much issue, but. These things happen. It's it's light heavyweight. Light heavyweight is always weird. Um, it is what it is. Uh, Josh Kulabau and Milzik Bagdazarian? Uh, I'm not going to say his last name again. I'm just going to say Melzik. Um, this is just a, a... If you want an example to someone for the a great... It's a perfect example of how important opportunism is in MMA and seizing opportunities because Kulabau was losing this fight and it was not that close. Um, not a dick kick notwithstanding, which was a bad one. Uh, In the second round, Kulabau jumps in with a lunging jab at the same time as Melzik throws a leg kick. Whether it was intentional or not, hard to say. They kind of happen simultaneously. But Melzik was thrown off balance by it. And the second, like the absolute instant Melzik hit the ground, Josh jumps on him straight to back control and gets the, gets the rear naked choke. And it was just a great example of like, seizing the opportunity and just like 
no hesitation whatsoever just like seeing seeing melzik start to go down and going yes now is my moment and it was uh it was cool cool unexpected and happened so quickly that like if you were you know at a party at a bro's place and you were reaching for another wing and looked back in the kitchen and in back you'd miss it it was that quick and completely off of expectation so it was just cool uh two more fights to talk about loma look boomy and elise reed is man loma look boomy is really making her transition to MMA decently well. She's learning grappling a lot more. You can see the leaps and bounds she's making in the grappling with every fight. It's like a dramatic difference every time. And uh, yeah, and this one's no exception. Uh, Lukbunmi, in terms of total speed, is probably a little slower, but when she throws, she throws hard. Um, it clearly had more power and strength than uh, Elise Reed. Look, boom, Loma has great counters. Um, you could see the giant welt on Elise Reed's thigh from just a couple of th- uh, just a couple of kicks. Um, and then in the second round, just goes for a clinch, comes around the back body lock, kind of picks Elise Reed up, dumps her over, and then instead of trying to like swivel around on top just throws the hooks in and lays back like uh (laughs) like the iron turtle and uh gets the choke and uh loma the loma look boomy experiment we'll call it uh gets to continue and we'll see how far up a 115 she can get um as primarily a tie fighter that's like kind of learning grappling and other things. She hasn't been in the MMA game that long. And uh, she's made some good adjustments. And it's just like, it's nice to have, it's always nice to have female fighters that you can be stoked on and interested in. That you're not like, eh, they do this thing, but overall they're bad. It's like, Loma Lukbunmi is a is a cool fighter to watch that I recommend. And then finally, my... One of my favorite things that happened the whole night was a really early fight on the card, and it was Jack Jenkins versus Don Shainis. Jack Jenkins is so good. Like, it's genuinely impressive. And, man, let's just break down. First and foremost, Jack Jenkins is known for his calf kicks. In some of his fights outside the UFC, I think he's broken three people's legs with calf kicks, just broken their shins. Which is just a, like, man, like, you have thick bones. You're, it's like the same effect as, like, uh, Jan Blahovich the other, like, the other night when he was fighting Magomed and Kalayev, where he's just like, yeah, I don't care if you check, I'm just gonna hit you in the shin to shin, and you're gonna break and I'm not. Jack Jenkins clearly fights with that same kind of mentality, where he's like, oh, I don't care if I hit you, if you check it shin to shin, I'll, mine will go through yours. Like, that's clearly how he fights, because he's broken a bunch of shins. He's broken three shins in three different fights so far. Crazy. Um, and he throws his leg kicks so hard. Um, and that's, you know, that's with the confidence that he's not going to break. And, uh, yeah, and, and he opened up, immediately started throwing that hard-ass calf kick. And uh, it kept Don Shanus from being able to throw with a lot of heat, 
because Don had to think about, he didn't want to go shin to shin with Jack Jenkins as far as how he was going to check the kick. He wasn't going to turn his knee and check shin to shin like a lot of people do. He wanted to instead do the, do the one where you kind of hinge it. You pick up your front leg, you hinge your knee and kind of put your ankle to your butt so that the shin kind of just clacks through your foot and doesn't like get a lot of purchase on the meat or like really do a ton of damage. Um, Jack still landed a few really clean ones that like clearly chewed up Don's calf. Um, making it hard for him to stand on it, but uh, the ch- his choice of check also meant that he couldn't throw with as much fury when he was trying to counter those kicks because his weight is off of the front foot. So it just it worked in Jack's favor where he could throw them with a little more impunity, where he didn't have to worry as much about what was coming back. And then uh, he could, you know, follow it up with various other strikes. He could open with jabs. I mean, there's the highlight that they showed multiple times uh, during the broadcast was he threw like a double jab to lead hook, all same hand, all left hand, like double jab, lead hook, and then lead hook to the body, and then threw the right calf kick again and just like blasted the dude's leg it was really like great shot selection and uh just cool shit and clearly he leans on his like toughness and strength uh, being a former rugby player um jack yeah jack jenkins is a, another crazy aussie stocky rugby player guy like uh like volkanovsky is who's just tough as shit and has that confidence to be more creative without worrying as much about like he clearly trusts his toughness that he can like go yeah it's fine if you hit me i want to do this stuff i want to do um yeah and and he also is a switch hitter which i always love you want to like varying up your game uh i notice at least in this fight he would throw the calf kick primarily with his with his right leg from an orthodox stance. And then when he switched stance, he threw the occasional switch stance jab, but he mainly used switching stance to throw left rear leg kicks. And he would throw to the body and to the head primarily. Um, and it just made, it made Don react every time Jack switched stance. It wasn't as useful as it could have been. Because Don would usually, when he saw Jack switch stance, he would either just jab or he would throw a calf kick of his own to the inside of Jack's front leg. And uh, Jack, instead of choosing to hinge at the knee like Don was doing or like uh, if you go back, like um, Jose Aldo would use that to check calf kicks a lot back in the day. It was really effective for him. It's a great way to do it. Um Jack opted for just turning his knee in and keeping his foot planted and just checking it shin to shin um, so it wouldn't hit the calf. And uh, what that allowed is Jack, it allowed Jack to check those calf kicks and then, and then be able to throw counters immediately afterward because his his weight was already forward. Um, It's just like, it's another sign of the way he likes to fight is very like aggressive and very forward. Um, 
and it it also creates a little bit of a wrestling threat although he didn't do a ton of wrestling in this fight as far as like you know working for takedowns though his grappling showed to be pretty damn good um in the end of the first round when don was on top of him for a while he showed great patience in not trying to like immediately bridge as hard as he could to try to explode he like he tried to shrimp out the side a couple times and when it didn't work he kind of worked his way over towards the fence put his feet on the fence and used the fence to bridge and sweep much like we saw jerry perhaska do against glover Teixeira early in the year last year um and it's so effective and it it doesn't matter how big the guy is on top of you if you can put your feet on the wall and bridge it's so effective at getting that sweep um and it was it was cool to see his patience in like okay let's see if this works okay that didn't work let's see if this works that didn't work and not panicking the second don got an amount um yeah i have a lot of hope for this dude i'm excited to see another stocky tough rugby playing australian man at 145 um it's it's rad and uh, you notice a couple times when Jack had the back, he had a hard time keeping the hooks and keeping Don from swiveling out. And a lot of that is due to his stockiness. Um, if you look at the stats, uh, if you look at his stats, Jack Jenkins has almost my exact build in terms of reach and height and stuff. And uh, I sympathize with him so much in how hard it is to keep the hooks when your legs are short. <laughs> like, if you watch him on the back, like, he barely has his ankles within Don Chanis's thighs to try and keep the hooks in. It's it's difficult. And I, I sympathize so much. Even the body triangle was hard for him to hold on to. He, he even had a hard time getting his foot up into the knee cavity versus just on the, on the calf when he was trying to use the body triangle to hold Don. I I sympathize so much with that. It is so hard to hold back control on a thicker dude if you have short legs. Um, but this dude still won the fight, had an amazing showing of the variety and the things he can do. I'm so stoked to see that dude fight more and see him in the UFC. As well as like me and my buddy Jamie, we adore calf kick finishes. And, uh, you know, with him here, decent chance we're going to see more of those because he's got a bunch of them already. So, yeah. Um, that was UFC 284. And, uh, man, it's it's nice to get into a season where we might actually have like a decent run of good fights that are worth talking about. Um, notice I haven't even said a word about that terrible card with Derek Lewis at the top. Because why? Why would I? It's bad. Um, and this and this card, despite looking like it was very top heavy and wouldn't have had that many good fights on it, um, actually has some cool stuff to talk about. So I'm pleasantly surprised and I hope you guys are too. Um, whoever bothers listening to this. <laughs> um, I always say I'll try to be more consistent and certain things I'll try to do, but realistically i can't promise that especially as the weather's starting to get better i'm gonna be able to ride more but uh you know i'll do this when i can because i do enjoy doing it so uh 
not sure how to end this. That's a podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, God bless short Aussie rugby players. They're, I, for whatever reason, they make awesome MMA fighters. <laughs>